This is Super Investors and the Art of Worldly Wisdom. I'm Jesse Felder. Object to the test! This episode is brought to you by The Felder Report. Uh, Each week, I go through a ton of reading and research, and I put it all together in a free email newsletter that goes out Saturday mornings, including some of the best stuff that I've read during the week, my favorite chart of the week, etc. If you're interested in receiving something like this, just go to thefelderreport.com, and right there on the homepage, it says, Join Now. Click that, put in your email address, and you'll be all set. My guest for this episode is Toby Carlisle. Toby, in addition to running Carbon Beach Asset Management, is the author of several books, including his latest, The Acquirer's Multiple. Honestly, I consider myself a student of the game, but nobody I know has dug into value investing and the different facets of it deeper than Toby has. So I was pretty excited to get the chance to pick his brain about this stuff, including the popular proclamation of the death of value. And now for your listening pleasure, my conversation with Toby Carlisle. Why fund managers can't beat the S&P 500? Because they're sheep. And sheep get slaughtered. And we're live. Toby Carlisle, welcome to the show. Thanks for, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Jesse. Well, you know, I'm a huge um, fan of your books. Uh, you know, I, I've spent my professional career even longer than that studying People who I believe are, you know, great investors, but uh, I don't think I've met anybody as dedicated as or, or gone to the same lengths that you have in studying some of these guys. So I'm, I'm excited to pick your brain about this stuff. Awesome. Looking forward to it. Yeah. Um, but you, you know, I, I was looking through your, your bio and stuff. You started as an attorney. You didn't even, um, I guess you studied some finance in, in college, but um Right. You started out as an attorney, is that right? I was. I was. Uh, I grew up in Australia. That's the accent. I grew up in a little country town in the outback Australia. Went to um, the big city to study um, my undergrad, which was business management, and did some very basic intro to finance and did some extension class that would would have been a master's in finance if I'd finished it. But that was sort of the extent. It was all efficient markets type stuff. And at the time that I was doing it, a friend of mine said, you should read this book, Security Analysis, which is a brutal, brutal introduction to value investing. It's, a, it's the hardest thing in the world to read. And of course, he yeah. said, you should read the, the 1934 edition, which is by far and away the hardest one to read. Yeah. So, um, at the time that I did that, I, I started uh, law school and I graduated from that a few years later. And then just where I, in the city where I was, it just wasn't. I didn't really know of anybody who was an investor. I'd never really heard of that being a job. But there, you know, there are lots of law firms around, so I went to work in a big law firm doing mergers and acquisitions. And it was just the time that I started it was the early two thousands. Um, I saw the very tail end of companies raising lots of money in the dot com boom, and then basically the the first three years of my career was. Um, either defending those companies from activists or helping kind of liquidate them or going through mergers and acquisitions where it was really the financial guys who were trying to get, you know, they'd raised a lot of cash, but they had no business, no business plan. They were just sort of burning cash and the activists would get in, stop the cash burn. And I, I had, you know, I had that little kind of background in security analysis and I'd read Warren Buffett's letters. So I sort of knew what he was looking for. And these things just didn't fit that model and I couldn't understand how they were, what they were trying to get. And of course, they were trying to get to the cash, knowing that they could 
stop the cash burn. So that was kind of the, I realized that there was a way that I could use my legal skills and um, do it in a value investing framework. And, and I sort of slowly worked my way into uh, into a firm over sort of another five years from there. So, so there was a, uh, like a startup boom similar to what we saw here in the U.S. in that yes, late '90s period. Is that okay? Yes, it was absolutely identical, and it was it was um, I, I, it wasn't it wasn't only uh, the states. It was I know it was in the UK as well because I spent some time in the UK while I was still at, at uh, uni, and uh, in Australia, very similar kind of idea, just copycat kind of businesses. There were a few, uh, like I think InfoSeek might have been run by some Australians, and they got it into. the I think it was InfoSeek, something like that. There are a few kind of, um, you know, they're all pretty junky, similar kind of cash burn, eyeball type businesses, eyeball burn type businesses, you know. Right. Yeah. And and well, so then you got an introduction to activist investing, like right off the bat. I mean, so these guys were coming in and hopefully hoping to take over the company and just liquidate it for the cash on the balance sheet. Is that kind of what was going on? Exactly right. Or use it as a cash box for further rating. So there was this guy, he was West Australian. He was a lawyer, funnily enough. And he was known as the Desert Raider. And basically what he would do is he'd come in and he'd grab these little cash box and he'd just get enough of a controlling shareholding to, um, to, to kill the business. And then he'd use the cash in that to try and do it again and again. And he rolled up a pretty big, um, daisy chain of these um, cash-burning sort of busted dot-coms. Interesting. Um, and, and then, so, you know, with a front row seat to what these guys are doing, you, you went to work as like a chief counsel for, for, was it for one of these companies at that time? So before, I, bef- I, I was transferred to the States for a little while. I went to San Francisco because I had this background by that stage doing, it was just, you know, it's just an accident of the market that there was a whole, I was doing a lot of tech. It was all info tech. Um, and they're all pretty similar businesses. You know, they're sort of driven by intellectual property. They were all web facing. One of these businesses, it wasn't kind of, it, it was a telecommunications company and it, they were, they were, they had a peering fabric. That's how they'd started out, which if you don't know what that is, it's basically, it's, it costs companies that are content producers. Um, money to send their content out over the internet and they pay that to a telco and to make it cheaper they go to a data center and they have a, a the computers just talk to each other directly and these guys had created this sort of thing that sat in the middle called a peering fabric and so the content providers and the content consumers could all sort of meet cutting out the middleman the telco middleman and as part of that business they had built out data centers and they had built some dark fiber network. And then they had realized there was this massive demand for dark fiber networks. So they had built out this enormous uh, sort of central business district, financial district, dark fiber network. This is in Australia. And they listed that company. I was there at the time that they listed it. I helped them do the listing. I got transferred to the States, doing a lot of infotech type stuff there. Spent a couple of years in San Francisco and went back to Australia to be their general counsel because the the issues for telecommunications companies are fairly heavily regulated, and it was also a, a time in the market where there were some who were doing very well, some who were doing very badly. So there were lots of acquisitions and there was lots of building. So it was a it was a sort of legal regulatory intensive type business that needed a general counsel to sort of oversee it who had experience in tech. Uh, IP and mergers and acquisitions, which was me. 
And and so that was still the, in the early 2000s. And that was one of those, uh, another one of those trends that just, you know, WorldCom-esque, right? Let's just spend a ton of money laying fiber, you know, how, how much, I remember reading the statistics, how much fiber, you know, you could wrap the world around like 5,000 times <laughs> or something, how much fiber they laid, you know, uh, and then those companies realize, wait, there's not the demand yet. We're in trouble. Well, I mean, was this was this a similar situation? These guys came out just after that, and everybody had been burned by exactly that. And they had this. They were very aware that the way that these other companies had failed was basically they they built out dark fiber, um, and they were sort of incentivized. Like the more dark fiber they built, the better their share price performed. Right. And that had been a trap for these guys because they hadn't got a customer at the end of at the end of the the the, uh, the the network, uh, the link or whatever it's called. So these guys had a different approach to it. They said, anytime we can find a customer who'll pay for the installation of the link, we will put it in and then we'll retain ownership and sell the rest of the capacity on it. So the customers actually paid for most of the build-out of the network and then they had all this additional network that they could resell. And as the network gets bigger, you get that network effect where everybody gets closer so the next link gets cheaper. And after a while, they were the biggest provider in Australia. Interesting. So yeah, they they kind of learned from uh, the predecessors uh, and took advantage of the situation. What? So you read security analysis. For me, you know, when I my experience with value investing and the margin of safety concept is it either grabs you right away and you go, wait, this is this is truth and there's there's something to this, or you, it, you know, it just doesn't ever grab you. So. When you read security analysis, I mean, that obviously was had to be your reaction to it, even I though it was so dense and tough to get through. <laughs> yeah, right. I think to be, I think to be fair, what the, fortunately for me, I was I was sort of aware who Warren Buffett was, and I had read his letters first. I think, and okay. so I at least had some incentive that there was some ability. You know, I think that the, the thought process was probably something like Warren Buffett is the richest man in the world. He's written these letters. He talks about security analysis. Therefore, I must understand security analysis. It was probably that kind of process. I, I, I you know, I've never recommended security analysis to anyone. <laughs> Just for that reason, I think if you want to turn so people off to it, you know, yeah, it's it's difficult. And, and uh, well, you know, and that, and that just leads... It to your new book, you know, which is, uh, you know, a lot of these concepts of value investing, you know, can be difficult to wrap your head around. Um, but your new book is aimed at kind of overcoming that challenge, right? The, the difficulty that that's exactly right. The difficulty that I had with um, Deep Valley, which was my my penultimate book. Oh, and, which I loved. Uh, yeah. Awesome you. book. Yeah. And then before then was Quantitative Valley. They're both they're sort of expensive, um, quasi-textbook, academic-type works. Uh, I tried to make Deep Value more readable than Quantitative Value, but even so, it was still, it's still a very difficult book to read. So I, I, I hadn't ever heard of this thing before, but there's, this, um, there's a way of measuring the level of your writing. So it's called, there's a few different ones, but Flesh Kincaid, Gunning Fog. They're these systems of sort of, they look at how many words per sentence, how many syllables per word and um, they, they give you a calculation they correspond it to roughly uh, the reading age that you achieved in school and it turns out that the books that I had initially written they were written at a level that was sort of like second year college which is which is way too high if, if you look at the most successful books 
that are ever written, they tend to be written at a grade four level, but certainly under a grade eight level. And, and when you look at the list of books at that level, it's like uh, Ernest Hemingway wrote at grade four level, and he's got a Nobel Prize for literature. So there's no, there's no shame in writing at that level, and it's actually really, really hard to do. And then, um, yeah, so Dan I, Brown's that, that's fascinating to me. Yeah, I haven't heard it. I mean, you're quantifying your writing. Right. Uh, very interesting. You know, I, I always think, so I guess, you know, when I go ahead. Sorry, you, you go. I was just going to say, you know, I, when I'm writing, I always try and think of writing to my wife or you know another friend who's a non-finance friend to try and put it in terms somebody else could understand because I, I find myself you know, using all kinds of jargon and making assumptions that, you know, the reader should know this. And, you know, it, it, it's just, it creates bad writing, <laughs> really. So um, I, I, did the, I did the same thing. I, I was writing for my, I, I write, you know, for my wife or for my parents or my, my kids, hopefully one day. And, you know, my parents are smart, but they're not stock market people. And I could, I could give them a book and they said, you know, it was, it was interesting what I could understand of it. And, you know, that's not what I want people to understand what I'm trying to say. So I, this one I wrote, I, at the very last person I gave it to was my wife, and I just said, read through that, and she said, yeah, thanks. I, now I, I do understand what you're trying to do. Well, there's a, a lot of value in being able to bring the, the concept, and there's a couple key concepts in the book that I'd like to talk about, but, uh, you know, I've had, I've, I've been teaching a, a, just a basic investing class here at the, uh, you know, community college for the last four or five years where I, I basically just teach people how to put together a permanent portfolio, but I do talk about the margin of safety concept. And I've had students come to me years later going, you know what? I literally frame everything around a margin of safety concept. Now everything in my life, you know, I want to have a margin. I go, well, that's taking a little overboard, but there is value in, you know, kind of applying that thinking to a lot of, a lot of other areas. Um, yeah. So let's, I mean, let's, let's dig into the book a little bit. It's called the acquirers multiple and it's kind of a, uh, you know, just pulls out some of the key concepts from your other books, like you said, and maybe a, a little bit more simplified or easy to read manner. What, I mean, what is the acquirers multiple? It's, it's a, it's a very simple way of looking at what a company earns and comparing it to what you're actually paying if you were to buy the whole thing. So the reason it's an acquirer is an, an acquirer is somebody like uh, a private equity firm or even an activist who might go into a company. And they look at the, the, the business holistically and they look at the company holistically. So they're looking at how much cash does it have? How much debt does it have? Does it have anything else that is like debt? So that's um, preference shares, um, minority interests, uh, anything that underfunded pensions, anything that is a real uh, cost, real, and it's just like debt that has to be uh, an obligation that has to be fulfilled at some stage. So for many, many companies, uh, they carry a lot of debt. So if you're just looking at market capitalization, which is the number of shares on issue multiplied by the share price, that tells you one, that's the equity that you're buying. It's like buying your house. It's the equity that you put down. It's the deposit that you put down. And then the debt is not counted at all, but that's, that's a real cost that the company has to bear. And if you, if you start thinking about it in those terms, you do find companies that have no debt or you find companies that have lots of cash on their balance sheet, so they're even cheaper than they look. And then you basically compare what you're, what you're buying after you back out the debt, after you back out the cash and add back on the debt, and you compare that to what I call the operating earnings, which is... Um, 
basically, if you know the profitability at the bottom of the of the income statement, it's adding back in interest and tax and depreciation and amortization. Those are real costs, but the capital structure impacts those costs, impacts the, the number. So what all of the operating earnings figure tries to give you is a like-for-like comparison between two firms. So I think I think a simple way of thinking about it is it's just like a PE multiple, but it's like an industrial strength kind of weapons grade PE multiple that has an X-ray into the business as well as just looking at the the, the market cap what you're paying. Yeah, and you know I think it was after I read uh, Deep Value I started. And, I, and I've looked at things, you know, this way for a long time. I, I, you make a point in the book or an, an analogy uh, comparing, you know, enterprise value um, is like looking at the entire iceberg, I think is the, right. uh, the analogy in the book. And, and that's perfect because the equity value, just the price per share, is the stuff you see above the surface, right? And when you look at a price to earnings ratio... You're only looking at that, but there's, you know, potentially, you know, companies with tons of debt that, you know, there's a whole lot of value there that, you know, you're not taking into consideration, uh, if you're not looking at it holistically, like you said. Um, that, you know, that's, I think, go ahead. It's the debt that, that sinks companies. And that's why I say it's the, it's the, the iceberg beneath the surface that is the bit that sinks the big ship. So you have to be careful of the, the part that you can't see, the part beneath the surface. Right. But, you know, and, and so to bring up that topic of risk and, you know, debt is another part of this, uh, this discussion of, you know, value. And, you know, I think, uh, looking at, you know, high quality, high return, you know, businesses versus companies that, you know, aren't necessarily, wouldn't necessarily fit that Warren Buffett, uh, you know, uh, high brand value um, type of target that he's looking for. Um, th- then this was something really interesting to me too. And, and we were talking about before that, um, you know, the little book that beats the market was because one of the things that you kind of looked at and Joel Greenblatt's thinking about, uh, you know, uh, value and kind of quantifying Buffett's approach. Um, how is yours, how is yours different from that? So I, I uh, read the little book that beats the market in 2006 when it first came out. Absolutely loved the book. The idea is that it's sort of a quantitative application of Warren Buffett's investment strategy where he looks for a wonderful company at a fair price. He defines a wonderful company as something that has a very high return on invested capital. And the idea there is basically for each dollar invested in the business, it makes more money. So the the companies that make more money are better than companies that make less money on, on the dollar invested in their business. And then on the other side, it looks at basically the acquirer's multiple. Greenblatt calls it the earnings yield, but it's basically the inverse of, of what what Greenblatt describes. So um, when you combine those two things together, you get the magic formula and Greenblatt tested it, says that it works. We tested it in quantitative value, tested it again in deep value, and I tested it again in this book. There's no question that the magic formula does beat the market in a uh, raw basis and on a risk-adjusted basis because it's finding these companies that are high quality and that are cheap. But the interesting wrinkle is that if you get rid of that high return on invested capital um, requirement, if you just look at cheapness, you get better returns again, and you get quite substantially better returns uh, on a raw basis and on a risk-adjusted basis. So I wrote deep value because I was sort of 
I had, I had expected that to be the case, but I really wanted to explain, understand why it was. So basically, there's this phenomenon in the markets known as mean reversion, and it works on... It's the way that undervalued companies get back to value. It's the way that poorly performing businesses sort of recover, and it's the way that really well-performing businesses, high-performing businesses sort of come back. Basically, it's competition attacking great businesses and making them sort of less wonderful than they were. So the wrinkle is that Warren Buffett doesn't just buy high return on invested capital. He he buys high return on invested capital with a moat, and the moat protects the, the high returns. But that's only about 4% of companies in the market. The other 96% of companies sort of have a business cycle, and you can buy them when they get cheap on the business cycle basis, and you can do very well. Uh, you do even better than you just, just by buying the very high return ones. And that's interesting. So we're, we're looking at um, enterprise value uh, to operating earnings is the acquirer's multiple. Does Greenblatt use the same um, valuation metric? He uses almost identical. He uses EBIT. Um, which, Instead of operating earnings. Which Buffett describes, interestingly, Buffett describes what he uses as operating earnings before interest and taxes. So he's basically talking about the same measure. Um, Greenblatt uses EBIT, which is the, the only difference between what Greenblatt does and what I do is Greenblatt reconstructs his from the bottom of the earnings statement up, and I construct mine from the top of the earnings statement down. There's a technical reason why I do that, but basically EBIT can capture one-off items, and so I try to avoid those one-off items by looking at um, you know, reconstructing from the top down. So the, the one-off items tend to come in lower down on the income statement. Ah, uh, Gotcha. Okay, so the really the only difference between the magic formula and the acquirer's multiple is adding that you know return on equity um, right. qualifier that Greenblatt right. uses, and so he's trying to just limit his exp- you know you know I, I, it's been a while since and I, I've read all of Greenblatt's books. Um, uh, you can be a stock market genius is also a good one too. That's uh, yeah, but. Um, I think you know. I think what he was trying to do there is yes, emulate Buffett, but also, you know, uh, what one of the biggest, um, I guess, uh, dangers for us value investors is those classic value traps. You buy something that's cheap for a good reason, and it never, you know, uh, never mean reverts. It you know just goes to zero. And so I, I think part of his process. Well, let's focus on these higher quality businesses, and maybe we'll eliminate some of those value traps. Um, is that is my am, am I remembering that correctly? Was that really the thinking behind that? You are, but the the problem with it is, unless you have that moat, unless you have some protection for that high return on invested capital, what you tend to be buying is something right at the very pinnacle of its business cycle. So you can have mixed in with those companies, there are going to be those that are sustainable high return on invested capital companies, but most of them are not going to be that way. Most of them are going to be um, giving back some ground over the next few years. All that the acquirer's multiple does is sort of eliminate that systematic error of focusing on the very highest returning ones. And uh, you, the, the acquirer's multiple is still buying companies that are companies that you would want to buy, companies that I would want to buy, because they, they do have very strong operating earnings, and they tend to have strong operating earnings relative to the residue of the business that you're buying once you sort of adjust for the cash and the market cap and the, and the debt. So you're, you're buying companies that 
probably on average have a lower return on invested capital, but they can be those at the top of the business cycle and those at the bottom of the business cycle. And, and uh, yeah, and, and you're probably getting a better margin of safety um, for the most part um, because you're not making an assumption about is this company going to remain a high-quality business like you are with the, uh, with the uh, magic formula. Um, there, are some, there are some interesting differences between the return profiles of the, of the two strategies. So the, the, what the magic formula does do in the late 1990s, uh, in the mid 2000s and now when the market is in this sort of, uh, very bubbly, very optimistic kind of blow off top, the high returning, the profitable, bigger profitable, high returning businesses do tend to sort of keep up with the market a little bit better than the kind of companies that I like to buy. Mine sort of suffer through periods like this, but on balance over the full cycle, mine do a little bit better. So my preference is to, to stick to the acquirers, multiple companies, mostly because you never know when one is going to start outperforming the other. So if, if I knew when, you know, if I, if I knew that the blow off top was going to be over sometime soon, then I'd, um, or if I knew it was going to continue on for another five years, then the magic formula might be the better option. Yeah, well, it's, and that's interesting from a, uh, you know, sentiment cycle perspective, right? Because it's, it's, you know, when it's most difficult to be a value investor is usually the best time to adopt uh, a hardcore value approach. And then when we hear people like, you know, David Einhorn, who's, you know, a classic, you know, value investor, uh, who is literally sounds like he's in the middle of an existential crisis right now. Like, <laughs> is, will value ever work again? You know, um, I, mean, I think there's some sentiment, uh, uh, value in, in just understanding that. Well, and I remember the same thing in the, I remember the same thing in the late 1990s, even though I, I was only just starting out, then I do remember that. And you can go back and look at the, the, the newspapers at the time, but you know, there were, has Buffett lost his touch? And there were lots of value guys who threw in the towel right in the late 1990s. And that was what created that phenomenon where in the early 2000s, there were, uh, there are guys who are sort of late 40s now who made their, um, became famous because they were just starting out as value guys in the early 2000s. You can look at the returns to value through that period. Basically, the market was falling, but value stocks were going up for about two or three years, and they were going up very substantially through that period. So if you were... Um, you know, if you hadn't been around in the late 1990s, this is, this is something I always say. It's, you see a lot of guys who are running big funds now who started in the early 2000s and you don't see many guys who started in the late 1990s. Right. It's only like a three or four or five year period difference. But, you know, there's like a, I can name half a dozen off the top of my head who started in the early 2000s. Well, yeah, 2000 was uh, one of my best years. It was probably my best relative return year of my career, you know, because there were so many great value names, anything that was old, old economy, bricks and mortar, you could have bought in early 2000 and made a ton of money by the end of the year. Because as the, the, you know, the tech blow off reversed, you know, in March, um, people started buying these value stocks again. I remember Washington Mutual, you know, back when it was just a thrift and it wasn't really getting into a lot of the financial engineering it got into later, but it was trading five times earnings, you know. Um, Abercrombie & Fitch was, you know, specialty retailer, 
trade. I remember that stock was trading seven, eight times earnings had huge, this talk about a magic formula stock had huge return on equity and was still growing like 15 to 20% a year was trading like eight times earnings. Cause they had one bad quarter of a, you know, style decision that they made. I mean, there were some incredible opportunities back then. And that's, well, that's one of the major differences with the markets today is that, you know, uh, there's just not a segment of the market where I'm finding much value. Yes, I agree 100%. I was going to say that 1999 was a very, very bad year for value relative to the market because it was it's probably one of the worst years on record. But um, what that what that did create was this sort of big difference in valuation, what they call dispersion between the very cheapest stocks in the market and the most expensive stocks in the market. And so typically, it's it's not quite a um, it's not an iron law that you can apply, but it's sort of directionally true that. When dispersion gets very wide, it typically heralds a pretty good relative performance for value coming up. But what has happened, uh, and that was that was also true. Uh, that, sorry, that was less true in 2007. But again, it's even less true again today. That even though value has sort of underperformed, the um, the dispersion between the very most expensive and the cheapest stocks is very narrow, and so value falls behind a little bit, and then it has this sort of little catch up. So last year was a great catch up year for value. But it's again this year. It's sort of trailed um, the market in general. It's not. It's not a phenomenon that really exists very many times. If you go back through the backtest data, looking at, at 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 the performance of the two strategies, it sort of seems to be. Um, it, it falls behind and then it gets a little catch up, and it falls behind and it gets a little catch up. It's one of the longest periods of of underperformance. Um, on record. So I think it goes back to sort of 2010. It's slightly negative, which is interesting. If you look at Einhorn's returns, so Einhorn had spectacular returns from sort of uh, 2000 to 2007. And he's really struggled since 2007, 8, 9, something in there. Somewhere in there, he's struggled sort of relative to the market. So he's probably had seven or eight or nine years where he's sort of probably lagged the market. Well, I mean, it's with, uh, you know, and I, I've argued that I think a lot of this is just due to passive investing when money's flowing into indexes equally. Uh, it creates this kind of pervasive, you know, uh, it makes it more difficult for things to become undervalued, I think, when there's just demand for almost all securities. But, you know, that reminds me, I, I, I interviewed Steve Bregman, you know, several months ago, and he brought up the idea of, you know, the best place he's finding value right now is um, companies with uh, low float uh, that are not um, likely to be included in indexes for that reason. And, right. you know, yeah. And so for me, I, you know, I thought, well, you know, what are the... What, the, the good ones that I've found in the past couple of years, and they've all had just this huge, uh, insider ownership, um, which is, you know, part right. of, part of my process. Is there, so, is that something that you're seeing today too? Or are you finding opportunities outside of the index's purview? We, we have, we have basically two strategies that we run on the firm. One of them is, uh, special situations, deep value special situations. So that's, that's sort of a go anywhere, look at anything hedge fund type strategy. And that's kind of completely, uh, agnostic to market cap. We, you know, it's funny. We've, we've found recently we've been buying long short kind of Chinese, um, companies that have a holding in another company. So we've done that with Sina Weibo. And uh, we've done that with Yahoo, which is now Altaba and Alibaba. Um, 
in the in the quantitative value portfolios that we run, um, we just sort of we we just define a, whatever the the client wants. We can define a market capitalization, then just buy the cheapest ones that market capitalization range, and then buy the cheapest ones in there. It's it's funny. I, I, I haven't really thought to dig into them on the basis of float, but I don't think there's really any rhyme or reason to it. You, you probably you can predict what's going to be cheap. It's it's you know a few years ago it was energy, um, it was airlines last year. Um, funnily enough, it's it's scooped up it's scooped up Apple uh, about eighteen months ago, which which I regard as a high quality company, but it was it also got very cheap. I I. You know, it's it is it is sort of sector related, and you can you can identify what the issues are with that sector. But otherwise, I I, I don't really see any rhyme or reason to it. Okay, yeah, you know, I'm just curious because I, you know, for me, I, I track insider buying and selling very closely. When I see big buying, a lot of times in these stocks, it's companies where they already have massive ownership, and something happens where you know that they the stock gets hammered, they have a bad quarter, and there's not that index buying there to support it. But um, uh, I, I want to talk more about Apple actually because you know in the um, in the acquirers multiple, I mean, and actually, I think this was a in deep value. You write about how the uh, acquirers multiple. Um, you a lot of times. Um, well, it's difficult to quantify. You know Warren Buffett's uh, strategy because he does have those other um, things where he's looking for high quality companies. But I think in deep value, you make the point of. A lot of the companies that are responsible for the better performance of an acquirer's multiple strategy uh, is that a lot of these are ugly companies <laughs> that you would, you know, that not, you're not just not looking for great companies, you know, part of the acquirer's multiples, you, you wouldn't be avoiding uh, ugly situations. Is that, am I remembering that correctly too? Well, you, if you often find that sectors go bad at the same time. So, or they they get cheap at the same time. So there's no um, you know there's there's no mystery often to why a company is is in there. It's it's uh, it's airlines for whatever reason last year were cheap, and I think they've got cheapish again now. Um, before that, it was energy. You know the oil and gas. If if the oil price falls precipitously, then um, all of those that have got too much debt kind of get wiped out. But then it also impacts every other company in the industry and so you'll find those get very cheap too so that's often something that we're asked like can you screen out can you avoid too much concentration in a sector we can do that but it's going to impact your returns you really have to be buying that industry sector concentration and the kind of volatility that that goes along with it if you want to get the really good return so that's often that's the reason that i put it in the book i have to people always look at the you know why do we own that piece of junk. I know exactly why that piece of junk is in there. And I said, well, when are you ever going to get, you know, the chance to buy that cheaply? And you have to remember like 18 months ago, that wasn't a piece of junk. That was a, that was a very high flying profitable company. And it, it will be given sort of two or three years, it'll be a high flying profitable company again, but we get to buy it now at sort of throwaway prices, liquidation, junkyard prices. So that's the reason that I tell that story just to sort of um, yeah. remind people that you don't get things cheap if they don't have some hair on them. Right. Unless, but I, I think I remember there being, you know, like in terms of, you know, within sectors, companies that have higher leverage or, you know, don't have the greatest profit margins, um, you know, maybe have a little bit more volatility in their results. 
uh, and wouldn't naturally, you know, be selected by even somebody who wants to look at the group, uh, end up, you know, outperforming the sector. It's this phenomenon that I, I kind of collect these examples just because I find it so fascinating. But, you know, I, I started out when I was net nets, which is a Benjamin Graham strategy, basically looking at the most liquid portion of the current assets, then taking away all the liabilities and then buying it even cheaper again. So you're buying the market, it trades at the market capitalization is two thirds of that tiny little residue. And you find that that performs really, really well. So there have been some classic studies done on net nets and they find that um, profitable net nets don't perform as well as unprofitable net nets. Right. In the profitable net nets, dividend paying net nets do worse than the ones that don't pay dividends. So all of your instincts about what you might want as an investor seem to be sort of wrong. You know, it's all very counterintuitive. And this is true. Um, there's, a, there's a famous study. So there's a very famous book, uh, In Search of Excellence by Tom Peters. And it's, it's often described as the greatest business book ever written. Basically, he was a, a consultant. He went and found all of these companies that he regarded as excellent. I don't think there was any sort of um, process to picking those companies. They just said these are the 50 or however many it was companies that we regard as excellent. They looked at the, uh, the financial statements of these companies and they found they all had very high returns on assets, returns on equity, returns on invested capital, very high rates of growth. They're also very expensive. They were two and a half times book on average. There was a, an analyst, Michelle Clayman, about five years after the book was published, she went and looked at the performance of these companies and found that they had underperformed the market as a group. And so she said, well, let's create the inverse of that. Let's go in search of unexcellence. And so she reversed <laughs> right. all of his, just, let's find the very worst return on assets, return on equity. And as you'd imagine, those stocks were very cheap. They tended to, charge, they tended to trade about two thirds of book and they, um, they beat the, as a portfolio, they beat the excellent companies. And it wasn't that they improved. It was actually, they, All the companies deteriorated over the, over the time that they tracked them. It's just that the, the ones that were two thirds of book basically rose to book. And that was the again. And the ones that were two and a half times book basically fell back towards book. So the study was replicated by her analyst, uh, Barry Bannister, who's now at Stiefel. He did it in 2013, basically found that what she had identified, uh, occurred over the full period the the unexcellent companies massively outperform the excellent companies it's 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 unexplainable other than in a value context well i would imagine it's it's harder to you know when you already have excellence to maintain that than it is to go from being an unexcellent company to a pretty good one <laughs> it's, it's a lot easier And to make improvements when pays. things can't get much worse absolutely and everybody pays up So these companies are sort of bid to heaven and they, right. they, if they don't, if they do deliver on all that promise, you get a market return. If they don't, they get crushed, which is a point that I make in the acquirers multiple, the book that you're better off where these things have been there. The expectations are so bad that if they're still here in a year, that's a massive win and the stock's up a lot, you know? Yeah, it, when the book does a great job of capturing, you know, that uh, belief in mean reversion. You know, you, you write a lot about mean reversion in, in the book, and I think that's another key concept, kind of like margin of safety, um, belief in cycles and mean reversion. It, but today, when I think about mean reversion, and maybe you have some thoughts on this, um, you know, corporate profit margins are just 
so high and they have been, you know, for a long time. And actually this is something that Buffett has been wrong about over the past 15 years, 17 years. What are your thoughts about, you know, sustainably high profit margins today? You know, it's Buffett has said that they're not sustainable at that level. Anything above sort of 6% of GDP, I think he says, is not sustainable. Jeremy Grantham says the same thing. John Hussman says the same thing. And if you look at the data on it, it has been um, – it's, it's got this very definite cycle to it. It's up and down, although the cycle does, tend, does seem to have been becoming more and more profitable. And then also the, the downside, you know, in 2000 and – eight or nine, I forget which actual year it was, but the banks lost so much money that that profit margin was zero across all of the other companies, which has never occurred before in the data that we have. So it's hard to tell whether that's a secular thing because American companies are becoming more international and so the earnings are coming in internationally or whether it's a, a cyclical thing and that sort of, that, that super cycle will mean revert. But I do think that, that there's a, there's a, Within that sort of bigger cycle, there's a smaller cycle, which is, you know, that they seem to be pinned up very high right now. I think partially that's a that's a result of if you set interest rates very low, then your margin, uh, then m- the marginal business, which might otherwise be wiped out in a more normalised environment, can sort of survive because they can get uh, financing that they wouldn't ordinarily be able to get, and their equity is also over a threshold return that you wouldn't ordinarily find. So I think, um, I do think it's a, my, my instinct is that it's cyclical, even though I think I do agree that it, it look, there's some, it does look secular. Yeah, it is. And I think, you know, the, the longer term perspective, and here's where Buffett was right, I think in that 1999 quote, when he was talking about the markets and profit margins and, uh, you know, he, um, said that for corporations to make, you know, a ton higher profit margins, then they have in the past, you know, labor would have to accept a smaller slice of the pie. And, you know, he said that would inevitably lead to political problems. And I think, you know, that was pretty insightful. I, th- I think he didn't think that would happen, but I think that's actually what's happening right now. As you look at the labor share of corporate income and it's, it's just shrunk massively over the last, you know, 15, 20 plus years. And, now we're starting to see, you know, political stuff <laughs> rise up. And I, I, I think it's, uh, an indirect, I mean, there's the wealth inequality, the wealth divide, but I think it's also a, f- a, a function of, uh, you know, real incomes, you know, being flat for the last 40 years and corporations taking a bigger slice of that. I mean, so it's interesting to me. I, I do think they're mean reverting also, but I think it's probably, it will be interesting to see if that comes by way of, uh, increased competition or by way of, you know, political increased perhaps regulation. So, um, I, I, you can see that in the data too. I, I, I looking at not on a real basis, but on a nominal basis since 2000, there's been a very, I think that might've been the peak of the earnings cycle, uh, that sort of the, you know, the, uh, wages and earnings. And then since 2000, it's, it's given back a lot of ground to corporate profits, but I think complicating it is that there is more international, there are more international earnings. It's, I think it's a very, very complicated answer. But, you know, my instinct is always that they, they, are, they are cyclical and it is going to go the other way. At some stage, earnings will – people will start getting paid more and that can only come out of, of profitability. Right. 
Right. I, I want to come back to Apple because, you know, we talk about the magic formula was uh, kind of an attempt to um, quantify Buffett's strategy. Um, but you use, I think, as, you know, kind of a representative of the acquirers model, you use Carl Icahn, um, who was necessarily not looking for the same type of quality that Bob was looking for. Um, and both of these guys have been involved in Apple over the past few years, uh, but but kind of in different ways. I think they both bought it at different times for different reasons. You have thoughts on that? Well, I think they're both, you know, they're both, at heart, they're both value investors. And I think for all of the talk that Buffett gives to very high quality companies, which he certainly buys. I'm not, I'm not disputing that that's what he does, but I just think he also buys those companies when they get very, very cheap. So Apple last year was in the cheapest 10% of all large cap companies, according to the acquirers multiple. And it was in my screen and I, I tweeted about it at the time. I, and I remembered the only time before then that it had been in the screen was 2013 when I'd also tweeted about it. And I just, and in 2013, it was Icahn who showed up about four months later, owning a lot of it. And his, uh, he, had, he had a complaint about it at the time, which was that it was carrying too much cash. And Einhorn had said the same thing, that um, it just was unnecessary for it to be carrying so much cash relative to its market cap and earnings, and it should pay out some of that to the, to the shareholders, which they eventually did through a buyback, the biggest buyback ever in the stock leapt when they did that. But the business is so strong that it piled up a whole lot of cash again over the intervening period and it got very cheap again on an acquirer's multiple in 2016. And so I tweeted about it and then funnily enough, Buffett came out as a substantial holder not long after that. So I do think um, they're both kind of, you know, value is not that great a mystery. It's sort of, you can, if you look at these things, I, I think there's sort of value in some ways the finding the value of something is is somewhat of a commodity. It's a very easy thing to do. You know, you can do a DCF, you can do Buffett style of like looking at the sustainable return on equity and comparing that to other avenues of investment. You can just do it on a purely ratio style. However you're doing it, if if these metrics work, they should be all identifying approximately the same thing at the same time. And that's what I think that's all that's happened. Icahn and Buffett are just looking at something that's so obvious that it hits you over the head with a hammer. And Apple was one of those opportunities in 2013 and again about 18 months ago. Yeah. And, you know, I, I bought uh, Apple in 2013. Um, it got down to, you know, I think six, six and a half times enterprise value to EBIT, something like that. I mean, which for that company is, I thought, crazy cheap. Um, I sold right. it in late 2015 or something um, when I thought it had become fully valued. And I think Carl sold uh, a- after I did. He probably made more money. I'm sure he made more money than I did on it. But it's interesting to me because in 2013, um, sentiment towards Apple was also, you know, people were very, very fearful. This was right after Steve Jobs had passed. And so I think right. it had, it paid to be greedy then. They hadn't even entered China as a market yet. So they still had massive growth ahead of them. And so I think those were some of the things, you know, that, that Carl was thinking also back then. And today, you know, now their growth in China is potentially at risk. And the, the, the valuation is the highest it's been, um, during this, this bull right. market. And, 
I don't see much, you know, I, I didn't even see in, you know, 2016, 17, you know, 2016, the same kind of fear that I saw in 2013. Um, you know, for me, I, I, you know, I guess Buffett is just looking at another one of these wonderful companies at a, at a decent price. Is that, is that how you describe it or what, what you would guess? Well, I think that was, I would say he was looking at, I'd say he would, he would just, just describe it as a wonderful company, but I think it got so cheap that it really didn't matter how, what, how good the business was. And that's something that I always say. I, business analysis is really, really hard to do. And like the, the people have taken a scientific approach to it, like Michael Mabison. They can't identify the factors that lead to very high returns on invested capital sustainably over the future. Buffett is doing something um, truly amazing when he's finding those companies that do it. But um, what I think he's doing with an Apple in 2016 is the same thing that I often say that I'm trying to do. If they get so cheap that you don't have to have an opinion about the business, then that's a good time to buy them. And yeah, the, the, everybody's worrying about whether the, you know, is the network, you know, will you buy your laptop and your phone and your home, um, your, your Apple TV and if, will you substitute that for Amazon or for Google or for something else? That's th- those are those are difficult questions to answer, maybe impossible questions to answer. But if it's that cheap, then I'm prepared to just take a bet on. I don't really care what happens after that. If it gets to the point where it's now, where it's expensive, and I have to have an opinion on what the business is going to do, that's just too hard for me. That's something I would rather not own. And you know, I I also need to remind myself from time to time that Buffett's working with a huge portfolio where there's only several candidates in the in the public markets that right. he can even consider. So, um, yeah, how do you put money to work in the public markets? You gotta, you know, I don't even know what his his limit is, but he's got to be looking at things that are you know in the at least tens of billions of dollars. Um, right, which is a small universe of companies to be buying, very small universe yeah. of companies. Yeah. Um, one of the most popular questions I get asked or, you know, uh, for listeners ask me, want me to ask people's about position sizing. And, um, you wrote, uh, you co-authored concentrated investing. Um, and so I, I think, you know, I, I got to ask you this question. What, what is concentrated and how do you think about position sizing within a kind of a concentrated value portfolio? So every time I write a book, I ha- there has to be some sort of some reason for doing it that is an idea that I want to explore. And the idea that I wanted to explore in concentrated investing was um, the Kelly criterion. So for those who don't know, it's basically a way of placing a bet and you have two considerations, your edge and the odds, and where you have some sort of private information where you think you've got an edge that you can figure out where, what the return is likely to be and the odds that you're offered are different or better than your edge, then it'll tell you how much of your portfolio you're supposed to invest in a single stock. And the reason, and it was sort of invented by um, John Kelly who died never using it or never talked about it, but the guy who did use it was Ed Thorpe and he used it first at a blackjack table and then he used it subsequently in his hedge fund to great effect. So basically... It works really well when you sit there and you get a bet and you have no other bets to consider. So if you're sitting at the blackjack table, 
and you have some idea about what the actual likelihood of you winning this hand is, then it tells you how much to bet, and it does it really well. When you have, and that's that's in series, I say bets in series, but when you have bets in parallel, which is, you know, we all have, if you're, if you're invested in the stock market, you can invest in any single stock in the stock market. You can invest in uh, T-bills, you can invest in international securities, you can invest in debt. Basically, Kelly would say that any time you've got a net present, you've got a net present positive value in a bet, it should have some small portion of your portfolio. So when you look at these things in isolation, it tends to tell you to bet too much. And the problem with that is that Kelly says that the only thing that you shouldn't do is overbet because that's fatal. What Kelly does is that it describes the outer limit of how much you should bet in any given um, position. So the, the interesting thing is that he's a he's a uh, a math professor, or he was a math professor. He actually taught at my wife's alma mater. He was at Irvine, and uh, he was he lives out in in Pasadena. And there's a um, value investing congress used to be out in Pasadena every year. And his son went along, and he said everybody's talking about the Kelly criterion investing in in value stocks. And it was just because. Just after Monish Pabriad published the Dando Investor, where he talked about using Stuart Enterprises and how much he did invest in it, which was like 3% or 10%, and how much he would have invested, which apparently recommended 97%. So Thorpe wrote this math paper, uh, like a proof, where he said Pabriad probably overbetted in this, or the, the thing that he would have suggested would have been overbetting. And here are the reasons why. And one of them is there are black swans that you can't account for. There's this sort of false pr- precision because um, you can't quite get the, the the mathematics just don't work um, without that sort of precision. And the other one was that you know there are so many different bets that you can put on. You, if you have two bets that recommend more than fifty percent of your portfolio, then you can't put them both on in that size at that time because if they both go wrong, you'll blow up. Instead, you have to scale them down to some other size. So. It's one of those funny things where you can be concentrated and you can be, you know, you can have a very, very big bet in a portfolio, um, or you can just sort of take a more, uh, easygoing approach to it where you say, I'm not going to try and capture every last dollar, uh, in a given bet because that sort of, it might risk ruin. So, uh, any kind of fraction of Kelly is a, is a good bet. So people say half Kelly is one thing that they like to employ. Basically, you do the calculation and you just put on half the size. Well, doesn't, so in the special situations portfolio, that's what we do. Okay. Doesn't, doesn't the, um, the, the Kelly criterion require you to make an estimate of, you know, what you believe the probability of you being right is? You just need, so you need, you can you can turn it into a sort of you, you so if you look at what the what the market is pricing a stock at you can turn that into um, you, you can turn that into an odds analysis and then if you have your own valuation you can turn that also into an odds I see. analysis so if you you can then work that you can then compare the two and and you can put it into Kelly and it'll give you a, a portfolio sizing a bet sizing for it okay and so but I mean just from a just a standpoint of what would you consider a concentrated portfolio? I mean, you know, S and P five hundred is five hundred stocks. You know, obviously, if you want to have performance different than the market, you got to be significantly more concentrated than that, or at least you know different allocations. Yeah. So, I mean, what what are your thoughts on what? I guess what would you consider concentrated? Well, 
in our portfolios, we can have 10 or 15% of the portfolio in a single stock at inception. But that would be a, that would be a stock that we think is very, very cheap. And um, basically, we can see a hard catalyst for getting the, the money back out again. And those are typically arbitrages where we can be long one side and short some other portion of it. So a good example of that is Cena Weibo, where Cena owns a big chunk of Weibo. So if you're long Cena and short Weibo, then you're hedging out the Weibo risk. And basically, you're just saying that the, the pricing implied in the market is wrong. Um, we can put this position on and eventually the two should be the two should come back and meet either in the middle or you know at, at either one of the prices and where that's how we're going to get our return there. It's not something that we're doing where we're sort of we're long only on one leg and we're really, really concentrated into that thing and anything can happen to that stock and can go down fifty percent or up fifty percent and either of those things would be um, you know perfectly rational and ordinary occurrences in the stock market. Okay. Yeah. That's fair. You know, we haven't um, talked about any. You and I actually haven't chatted since we were both on on the investors podcast a few months ago. Do you sure? Um, do you still like assured guarantee? <laughs> uh, I, I was I was actually going to bring that up first okay. and say uh, <laughs> congratulations on the performance of your of your stock. Oh, it's better to be lucky than good, right? Sad for me that it hasn't worked out. But yeah, I I, th- I still think so. Uh, we in our, in our in our portfolios, uh, we did take down a short guarantee. We still hold some, but we've taken it down. Um, I personally still think it's a very good position. I don't think that they're in any risk of blowing up. I think that it's very very cheap and it's below the price where they have been buying back stock in the past. For most companies, that would be an irrelevant piece of information. But I think that for these guys, they are unusually smart and. Um, they are shareholders. So when I say they care about the shareholders, all I'm saying is they care about themselves. But I'm perfectly fine investing alongside guys like that as long as they're treating everybody equally. So um, the reason that they've been below, that they've sort of traded down now is that the hurricane in Puerto Rico. Um, and I think Trump came out and said something like, if, if you're a debt holder in Puerto Rico and these guys insure the debt, then, you know, just say bye bye to that money. I don't know if you can actually do that, but that it, it took a, it took a big header on that day. So I think that the, 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 uh, that's the very long version. The short version is yes, I do think it's still a good position. And, um, we didn't ever actually set a date on how long that had to run. So I, I I'm going to claim it like at least a year to see. How oh yeah, no, absolutely. Before. Yeah. I, I, I was just looking at it because I'm like, yeah, you know, looks in, you know, it's a history of its, you know, price to book value and things. It looks like it's back in the heart of that range, which make it, uh, you know, decently priced. Is that what you look at it's mainly cheap. for that one? It's definitely cheap. Uh, it's, it's a, uh, it's a, um, it's because it's an insurer. We use uh, adjusted book value, okay. um, which which is not uh, an acquirer's multiple measure. But that's that's something that. So I think adjusted book value for this thing is something like seventy bucks, and at sort of thirty six high, uh, it, it's it's kind of close to half price. So I, I think it's a pretty good bet at this kind of level. It's one of those stocks that we've owned it for quite a while. So we owned it uh, at a much lower level than this, but. When we owned it at a much lower level than this, it was the the price to book the the adjusted book value was about half where it was. So the the adjusted book value has doubled over kind of eighteen twenty months, 
and the price has roughly doubled as well. So it's as cheap as it was when we first bought it. Interesting. Yeah, no, that's just one I've been watching since we talked, and so I wanted to get an updated uh, feel for it. But uh, hey, Toby, thanks for doing this. Where, where can people um, follow your ideas, uh, kind of stay in touch with, uh, with what you're working on? Acquirersmultiple.com has a free screener for the for stocks that sort of meet the criteria that we've been discussing. Um, I've got a new book out now, which is The Acquirers Multiple, How the Billionaire Contrarians of Deep Value Beat the Market, and that's on Amazon, uh, Kindle, and paperback. Uh, and I also, I, I, on, on Twitter, at Greenbacked, which has a funny spelling, it's G-R-E-E-N-B-A-C-K-D, um, and I'm sort of on those pretty regularly through the day. Yeah, and where where does the I never asked this. Where does the greenback to come from? The idea was when when the, I had a little blog called greenback.com. It's still there, but I I just haven't updated it as regularly as I should. The idea was that if my favorite kind of stock to buy, you know, dating back to when I was when I was a lawyer just starting out, were these companies that were trading at a discount to cash, and I used to see it you know, and. Because I was in Australia and I was working in Australian um, public companies, I wasn't allowed to invest in any Australian public companies because you never know when one of them's going to do something and you'd be the lawyer on the transaction. So I was investing in US companies to avoid any conflict. And so I used to say, you know, the, the great thing about these companies is they're, they're backed by greenbacks. You know, they're greenbacks. Right. Okay. Perfect. Yeah. And, and, and it, you know, that sounds like another way you could describe a net net trade is, you know, it's backed by cash in the bank, right? right. <laughs> that's, that's awesome. Right. Hey, man. Well, thanks. This was a lot of fun. I really appreciate being able to pick your brain like this. Um, uh, thank you very much. And we'll have to do it again sometime soon. Awesome. It was an absolute honor. Thanks, Jesse. And that does it for another episode of Super Investors and the Art of Worldly Wisdom. As always, you can find notes and charts related to this episode at thefelderreport.com. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, buy low, sell high. Man looks in the abyss. There's nothing staring back at him. At that moment, man finds his character. And that is what keeps him out of the abyss.